1: everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast, where we seek to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, it's no exception once again. We're starting in January here, in New Year, and i like to devote January to the topic of abortion, since this is the month of Roe v. Wade. And I'm not a specialist on abortion, so I get on those who are a specialist. Now, Bob Stewart of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary helped connect me with the guest that we have today who he said that he has forgotten more about abortion than the rest of us have learned. And my guest in is Jay Watts. Jay Watts is a speaker and writer for the Life Training Institute. He served as development coordinator at Cobb Pregnancy Services for three years, experiencing first and the powerful impact pregnancy centers have in their community. He started contributing to the, uh, to the Life Training Institute blog in 2007 and joined as full-time staff in 2010. Jay speaks to churches, youth groups, school assemblies, and other organizations throughout the United States on topics, including the Case for Life and Understand the Christian Worldview. He has trained groups at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Harvard University, University of Illinois, Auckland University, New Zealand, and many other universities, participated in multiple projects, conferences, and been interviewed on radio and television on the issues of the value of human life. Jay is also a contributing researcher to Summit Ministries' Understanding the Times curriculum. He is an associate member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Jay is a native of Marietta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta, and resides there with his wife and three children. So, Jay, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast.
0: Uh, I really appreciate you having me on, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good
1: to have you here. Now, some of my listeners might not know who you are Steer. so tell us a little bit about who you are as a person and how did you get to be doing what you're doing today?
0: Well, actually, when I was younger and uh, through high school and through my college years into my early 20s, I was a pretty outspoken and nasty atheist and was pretty radically pro-choice at the same time. I had a very strong pro-choice ethic and, and believed that men shouldn't have an opinion on this issue In my early 20s, I became a Christian because I was convinced of basically the moral arguments and also the historical resurrection arguments. Those are the things that convinced me that Christianity was true. When I first became a Christian, I had no interest in discussing abortion. I hated the whole topic. As a matter of fact, one of the very first prayers I ever said as a Christian was, you know, God, I'll do anything that you want me to do now that I believe that you're there, but if I could go the rest of my life without ever having you talk about abortion, that would be great. Uh, it just, it brings out the worst in people. And I me mean, being on the other side, having been the worst of the other side and nasty and ugly about it, and seeing at that time, really, uh, Operation Rescue was going on in the United States when I was younger, and so there was just a lot of protests at abortion clinics that got ugly and people throwing around terms like baby killers. It was just an ugly time for the issue, as far as being able to discuss it in a respectful manner. I wanted nothing to do with it. But God, in his infinite wisdom and with his great sense of humor, conditioned me over the next few years to start to change my mind about the value of human life and starting to recognize that if I believed that human beings had value by virtue of being the image bearers of God, I was going to have to come up with an argument as to why the unborn were not image bearers of God. And then gradually things started to upset me. Uh, I started to get a sense of irritation with what I saw going on. I remember particularly a couple of instances. One of them was the argument for Gonzalez versus Carhartt on the house floor. I was driving. I was a salesman at the time, and I was driving to customers down in Savannah, Georgia, which is about a five-hour drive from where I live. And I listened on NPR all day as these people defended uh, the partial birth abortion method, dialysis and extraction, that was being used. Uh, where they would birth the child out suck the brains out of his head and collapsing his head and killing him at that point and then take the rest of his body out so they birth him all the way up into the neck then stick scissors in and suck the brain out of his head something that even at the time that i would consider myself only mildly pro-life struck me as being a monstrous and indefensible action and yet all day on the floor of the house these people were defending it and i remember getting to my hotel room that night and feeling convicted that I was living in a time where I probably needed to do more than what I was doing if what I believed was happening was happening. If I believed that there were valuable human lives being extinguished on a scale of which that we see happening in the United States, uh, I, I needed to take some action. But I set that aside for years then ultimately, I decided I wanted to have a life more devoted to ministry, and so I left my secular job where I was selling as I was a commission salesman and did you know pretty well for a while there and had dreams of becoming this very prosperous and rich guy in my old age that would pay for other people to do ministry uh, that did not end up being what my lot in life was but uh, hmm. when i when I felt empty and wanted to get more involved in ministry in some way i, I went to my pastor at my church, and I go to a very large church, uh, and, and Bryant Wright, who was at one point the head of the Southern Baptist Convention,
1: uh-huh. said,
0: um, Jay, you don't seem to know what you do in ministry, you just seem to have this interest of being involved in it, so why don't you teach a class here at the church and you can do anything you want? And so he gave me a Wednesday night, and I developed a class where I was going to discuss in succession certain things, and I was going to talk about violence and the way we treated other human beings, and I was going to talk about how, what the scriptures seem to indicate how we should treat other human beings, and try to establish if there's a wide gulf there between the way the world is and the way God wants us to be. And then I would do the same thing with the value of human life. I would do the same thing with idolatry. I would do the same thing with sexual brokenness. So the idea was to try to look at the way the world is in reality without flinching, without being afraid to see it as what it is and then compare that to what God called us to be and see if we could make some uh, guess as to why there was this chasm between those two things, what we are and what we ought to be. And as, as providence would have it, the first thing that I did was violence. And so I studied for three months man's inhumanity, the man. My wife will tell you, it was just a lovely time to talk to me around the house. Uh, because I was reading, you know, every day you're steeped in just these terrible things. The Holocaust, you're talking about uh, hold on the door, hold on, well, hold them door, Uh, what stalin did to the ukrainians you start to talk about shadow slavery here in the united states you're looking at Pol pot and what happened in cambodia you look at what happened between the hutus and the tutsis in rwanda every day slavery in in england every day you're just steeped in this deep level of inhumanity and more and more becoming acquainted with the darkness that is in us and what we're capable of doing to other people but in every one of those places in soviet union and england and united states during slavery uh, even in Rwanda, there were Christians there that were trying to make a difference. And the question keeps coming up in my mind when I read about Nazi Germany and Pol Pot's Cambodia. If I were a Christian and I were in that place, what would I be? Would, would I be one, would I be Bonhoeffer? Would I be Coretta Boom? Would I be one of the people in Nazi Germany that tried to stand against Hitler, or would I be one of many, many Christians, the majority of Christians? that joined the Nazi party in order to to get along and to not draw attention to yourself. In in the United States, especially coming from where I come from in the South, many Christians used the Bible to defend the evil of slavery. It wasn't enough for them to just lay low, but they used the Bible to defend slavery. Would Mm -hmm. would I against slavery? Uh, Would I have defended slavery uh, in that monstrous act? Or would I have just laid low and tried not to be impacted by all these things? That was a repetitive question that came up. And then finally I got to the value of human life after doing that for three months. And I started to really see what was going on with abortion. And I had to ask myself a couple of questions. One of them was, I claim to believe that the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are. I have this personal belief that they matter, that they're the image bearers of God. Uh, What's going on in the world is an undeniable fact. More than 1.2 million a year on average being killed in the United States through surgical and chemical abortion. Worldwide, somewhere about 40 million abortions going on uh, every year. I live in a time, if what I believe about the unborn is true, of great inhumanity, and I've spent the last three months questioning what I would do if I lived in a period like that. Would I be the kind of Christian that laid low? Would I be the kind of Christian that did something? And so struck with suddenly the realization that if I'm correct in my view of the unborn, that I live in such a time, I was struck with the realization that I live in a time like this and I'm doing nothing, nothing real. I mean, I, I have very strong convictions about my pro-life positions or else I wouldn't be teaching a class on it. But in reality, I'm not doing anything real to confront this evil in our culture. And so, I need to either change my mind about what they are, are the unborn human? And and, and I could not. The arguments just seem too strong to me in favor of the idea that they are human and that our moral obligations and duties that we have to all human beings extend to them. And so not being able to change my mind and not being able to change the data of what's going on, the only thing that I could affect was the third thing. What was I doing about it? And that's why I ended up working at a pregnancy center. That's how I ended up working with Scott. And that's how I ended up uh, traveling around the country and having the privilege of talking to university students, churches, high school students, organizations, professional organizations, organizations. Camps. I mean, my whole life is talking about this issue and defending the Christian worldview. And it's a, it's a great life to have in the sense that since that crisis of what am I going to do, at least I go to bed at night on most nights uh, feeling like I have a good answer for when God asked me what I did on that day with the information that I have. So that's, that's how I got all those.
1: And that's a very fascinating story. I really didn't know a lot of that. And I, I did have to laugh at one point when we talked about how you said, I, I want to serve God, but I, I never want to do X and such. Cause yeah. we, we we have a funny story here that my own wife years ago had a, had told her mother about so many qualities she wanted in a man and missed out on pretty much all of them
0: <laughs> with me,
1: and especially when we got the funny part of, and I will never date or marry an apologist. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Be very careful, people, when you say you
0: will never do such and such. God has a
1: great sense of humor.
0: Yeah, and I try. I talk to people. Not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not as theologically grounded as a lot of my friends in one particular view of how God deals with us versus another in some particular aspects. But I try not to feel like God is punishing me for Mm -hmm. being so silly as to tell him what I would do. As much Mm -hmm. as I think instinctively, I must have seen that coming down the road and decided. Hey God, if I can have some input here, this is not what I want to do. And I uh, appreciate the input, Jay, but we'll just work your way out the way I see it, anyway. <laughs> well, let's uh, get
1: into the main thrust of the topic here. Well, right. since we're talking about abortion, I think one of the most important things we should do at the start is really define our terms. What what do we mean when we use the
0: word abortion? Yeah, we're talking about the intentional destruction of, of human life. Prior to birth, when you're talking about abortion, it can happen surgically, it can happen chemically, but it's when we intentionally, by act, uh, either through a third-party agent or even when women do it to themselves in an act of desperation, are ending their pregnancy by terminating the life of the, hum- the human life that is developing and growing within them prior to mm-hmm. birth. So, obviously, if after it's born, which is why we have the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which is a, a moral law that has no enforcement arm here in the United States. Uh, But once the child is born, we would just call it infanticide. Mm -hmm. Prior to infanticide, we would call it abortion. As a discussion of what we're doing there. It's an act against the unborn that ends in its death.
1: Well, let's look at a common theological objection since you said all that at this point. Since you describe this as an intentional act that ends a human life. There are a lot of atheists who say, well, if you want to see who the number one abortionist is, look at God. I mean, look at how many, many pregnancies end in miscarriage.
0: Who's causing all the abortions now? Yeah, that's a, that is an objection that you hear sometimes. They'll talk about the miscarriages. First of all, the, the data that we have on the number of miscarriages is, is I would I would warn people it's a little unreliable because we get data from fertility clinics, and that's where we we extrapolate the data from the number of natural miscarriages that happen versus. Mm-hmm implantations that carry. And because when you're talking about fertility clinics, you're already talking about a group of people that are having issues, obviously, or they wouldn't be at fertility clinics getting pregnant. It, it's not something that you want to naturally say, okay, well, this is indicative of all things. But even if we admitted that, let's acknowledge that and say, stipulating for the conversation that those particular things are correct, that, that then God is the greatest aborder of all because he is causing the death. Well, Andrew Sullivan, who is by no means, you know, a, a Christian in any sense, he's a homosexual. Mm-hmm. He is a conservative homosexual for the most part on, on most issues. Uh, he argued that just because natural disasters happen doesn't mean that we're morally justified in mass murder. Uh, we, we we have to differentiate between the idea that people naturally die and that I have the excuse to take action against them to end that life. And one, that's why we have the term homicide. And homicide doesn't necessarily mean murder. But homicide is when we are looking at a death, like say an investigator goes to a scene, and and we saw this recently with the Michael Brown scene when there was a lot of confusion where people were saying, well, the the investigator said that Michael Brown it was an issue of homicide. Well, the, the delineation of it being homicide, calling it homicide was saying it wasn't a natural death. (laughs) <laughs> that was right. that was what they were acknowledging, that Michael Brown didn't die of a heart attack. He was shot to death. Now, mm-hmm. whether that was a moral case or an immoral case, whether the policeman had the right or justification to do what he did or whether he acted immorally, and we can call it murder, that's a separate question. Mm-hmm. But the, more, the nature of the act was homicide. So when we're talking about whether or not people die natural deaths prior to birth, of course they do. People die natural deaths early in the first year. I remember when my first child was born, for whatever reason, I was struck with a deep fear of SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. I was right. I was terribly concerned that he and and for whatever reason too, I knew the data said that if he survived the first year, that his his risk of SIDS dramatically decreased. And so up to his first birthday, I was terrified. But. Obviously, the fact that I was terrified meant that there's a great deal of data out there that an unusual number of children die in the first year of their life, especially males. But that fact that they die in that first year of their life, natural death, in which case we could say that God killed them, wouldn't justify me deciding to kill my son because I grow aggravated with him for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so natural death, the idea that God, the creator and sustainer of all, is a Christian, we could say that he is the architect and you know, orchestrates our days, and if he decides that my days end here or before I'm born, or allows me to die, or however you want to process that, those things occurring naturally or by God's will, in no way justifies an action of my own against another human being. He has forbidden that. You know, he said, thou shalt not murder in in the Ten Commandments. But he didn't say, you know, because I caused the natural death of a lot of people, I'm going to be a little bit more lenient on how you do so when you decide to go out and kill people. No, he said, thou shalt not murder, that he has prerogatives that we do not have, rights and, and the ability to do things that we just don't have. And so that in no way justifies our action, pointing to the fact that people die natural deaths. It doesn't mean that I can kill people.
1: And we even do, I think, have to be cautious in saying God caused it, because yeah. if we have a more Muslim view or maybe an extreme Calvinist view, we can say that God causes everything. That happens, but a lot yeah. of Christians would say, no, God doesn't cause everything. He allows things, but he doesn't... He he's things. not the direct cause. It's not... It's if We are pawns on a chessboard or something of that sort.
0: Yeah, and it has actively killing people, you know, that yeah. God is running around actively killing every person that dies. I agree with that. I yeah. mean, the, the right. use of word cause would have to be carefully registered.
1: There's supposed to be an old Far Side comic strip somewhere with... Uh, man walking down the street, and he starts walking underneath a piano, suspended by a rope, and you see God sitting at a computer, and he's about to push a button that says, Smite.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to introduce my son to the far side right now, so Mm -hmm. I really love this cartoon. Uh, You're doing a good job as a father.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, when we talk about abortion, that that started with Roe v. Wade legalizing it, in january 22nd 1973 if i'm correct at that point yes. and but the the thing is that it didn't just happen that one day the supreme court woke up and said hey let's make abortion legal. I mean, what what led up to the the legalization of abortion we didn't we didn't just arrive at one day by accident how did we get there yeah
0: yeah and that's a yeah there's that's one of those questions and I, I know you're familiar with because you do a lot of work with the historical the church and the first of the resurrection and, and right, talk right, about right. biblical inerrancy. Well, we could go back as far as you want to go with that, and so we have to figure out a, a, a workable point that we can start. Um, first yeah. of all, I would like to say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I question people, you will hear as a defense of abortion oftentimes that abortion has always happened and abortion has always been there, and that is true. And so yeah. – in the sense that, as Joseph Filipina says in his book, The Spelling the Myths of Abortion History, if we can accept that it's axiomatic, that as long as women have been getting unintentionally pregnant, there have been women that are desperate enough to do almost anything to rid themselves of that unexpected pregnancy, then yes, abortion has always existed. But in order to understand what has happened in the last oh, let's say 150 years, Uh, leading up to Roe v. Wade, we really have to first look at the advancement of modern science. Mm -hmm. Uh, What begins to happen in the mid-19th century is that we become uh, able to perform abortions in a way that we could not have done prior to that point. As we start to learn about biology and what's going on in pregnancy, and we advance the cause of modern science, We're suddenly, in modern medicine, given the ability to do things. Whereas prior to that, and Joseph Delapina talks about this in dispelling the myths of abortion history, if you say abortion has always been around, prior to the advancement of medical science, you have the responsibility of explaining what were the mechanisms of abortion that were used and that were reliable prior to this point. And they were all very, there was one would be physical violence to the woman from outside the body, uh, obviously poisoning her or cutting the child out and, and, and getting it none of these things would be things that could be reliable not to kill the mother as well and as, a fa- as a matter of fact uh, for, for most of history a woman committing trying to get an abortion or a man trying to cause an abortion in a woman where she got pregnant and he didn't want her pregnant with, these things were seen as a tantamount to either suicide on behalf of the woman or murder on behalf of the man or attempted murder because these were such risky things to do uh, and it was much more common for you to see infanticide, for people having their children and dumping their bodies, which is why you get Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal written when he wrote it, uh, speaking out where you would see infanticide, sometimes according to Joseph Filipino in his book, on the same scale as that we see abortion today in our culture in certain parts of Europe. Uh, and so prior to the mid-19th century, we just couldn't do abortion the way that we could now. But then all of a sudden you could. And, and Marvin Alaski writes about this in Abortion Rights. Then you have this sort of explosion of abortion on the scene, especially in response to prostitutes who got a, a lot of abortions during that period and this sort of spiritualism that was going on at that time. Uh, and, and, and Marvin Alasky says, well, you had this huge explosion of abortion on the scene, and so you had your first really pro-life blowback to it towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, so what happens as we get into the 20th century is that we get the ability then to do not just abortions, but also understanding of a bacteria. Uh, we get antibiotic knowledge. And so abortion gets safer and safer. Uh, and the world is sort of struggling. I, I try to tell people, like, what you've got to imagine is uh, in the mid-19th century, imagine a huge rock was thrown into a pond, and these huge, massive ripples were going out. It feels like abortion has been here forever, but really, in my opinion, when you look at the history of abortion, we're really still at the stage where the liberalization of abortion laws is still emanating out from that huge massive rock that was thrown in the water of this idea of abortions that were safer for the women that were getting them, and that was no longer seen as a suicidal or homicidal act to try to perform an abortion on women. Mm-hmm. And by the time, so you see the whole world struggling with this. By the way, in post World War II, you see Germany instituting abortion to try to deal with all the women who are having pregnancies because they were raped by Russians. Uh, and you see Russia going back and forth with how they're going to deal with abortions, uh, dealing with different things. You have all of Europe, they're after post-World War II struggling with this. And in the United States, you see this gradual, as the sexual revolution hits, this desire to sort of loose ourselves from the logical consequences of our sexual ethics. I should be able to have a sexually promiscuous life but not have to deal with those consequences because sex has been loosed altogether from anything meaningful. And so the laws start to build as they're starting to push this new concept of what it is that we should be able to do. Now, Roe v. Wade doesn't make abortion illegal. And it doesn't make law. What it does is it was already legal in several states, like Hawaii, New York, places that had very liberal abortion laws prior to Roe v. Wade. What starts to happen is you see this campaign, and quite honestly, a campaign in many places of absolute uh, dishonesty where they were talking about 10,000 women were dying every year from septic abortions attempts, and all these women were dying in back alleys. Now, if any one woman were dying, by the way, in a back alley abortion, it's a tragedy. But the numbers yeah. that were offered were ridiculously out of proportion, and Bernard Nathan said admits that. He says, look, we know we were lying. We knew it was all a lie, but we saw that we had a greater cause and a greater end to what we were doing. And so as they're pushing for this, what happens is there's a case called Griswold, Connecticut, in, Griswold versus Connecticut that comes to the Supreme Court in 1965. And it's about a married couple's ability to get, uh, birth control and to use birth control against the laws or government. And they were offered at this point what, uh, the Supreme Court Justice Douglas wrote as a right to privacy that existed prior to the Bill of Rights. It's older than our political parties. It's older than our school systems. And that right to privacy is grounded in certain emanations and penumbras uh, when all our laws and in, in, in all of our uh, Bill of Rights. And so what he says is that you have a right to privacy. And, and as they pass this, by the way, uh, from the court, the, 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 uh, the Chief Justice of the Court says this should never come back to be used against abortion laws, we shouldn't use the same right to privacy. But lo and behold, just a few years later, that's where they go. And they start talking about the right to privacy and women being able to make private medical decisions without the interference of the state. So in 1973, what happened when Roe v. Wade came to the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court did was say that the legislative branch and the uh, executive branch we're not allowed to have any say on the issue of abortion. They shut down dialogue. They said, look, we seem to have a liberalization going. People seem to be headed towards the place where abortion is acceptable, even if it hasn't happened so far. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead of everybody. We're going to kind of sidestep this whole argument so the country doesn't have to be divided on abortion forever. And we're going to say that throughout the United States, people should have free access to abortion, and the government is not allowed to restrict women's access to abortion. And... and so that's, a, that's constitutional right now throughout the United States, and nobody is allowed to pass any laws that would restrict any woman's reasonable access to abortion in any state in the United States because the Constitution protects that right. So they went through and told all the states that still had laws against abortion at the time, you're not allowed to have laws against abortion. And, and that's what happened in 1973 in Roe v. Wade. It was the culmination of all of these these forces medical science making it possible to do it as the culmination of the liberalization of the laws, that all these liberalization of the laws that we're dealing with this the practices of sex in the United States from the sexual revolution, and then ultimately culminating in this concept of privacy that said that women have the right to, private make, to make private medical decisions as it concerns themselves. And then the only way they could do this, though, and that gets to where I argue more often than not, is by discounting the humanity unborn. Mm-hmm. Justice Blackman, as he's making the case, mm-hmm. that we don't know what they are. And since we don't know what they are, we cannot allow the states to protect their lives against the interest of the women. Well, Justice Blackmun was wrong. I mean, we know exactly what they are. And another question is whether we have moral duties and obligations to them. But Roe v. Wade is is really a disaster of legal reasoning. And almost everybody that on both sides of the issue that I've ever talked about that are informed of the legal reasoning recognize that Roe v. Wade is just a disaster. Even the people that love the results of it say, I wish we could go back and fix it. And they tried to for years to go back and put into place laws that will fix the legal reasoning of Roe v. Wade because it is just a nightmare of, of not just dishonesty and problems, uh, but of, of legal reasoning altogether. So when you start talking
1: about the advent of modern science, uh, I was thinking, you know, we could say murder has always been with us, but modern science has sure made it a whole lot easier. Just yesterday, I wrote a blog piece responding to John Messery in salon so, about how he said that religion has a shaky foundations he said, we know science is true because science works. It produces results. And so what I did is I just put up a picture of Hiroshima after the bomb had been dropped and said, yep, it yep. works. Yep. I mean, that's not to knock science, but say science is a tool. It can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. And sadly, in this case, it's used for evil. Yes. Now, yeah,
0: divorced from moral consideration, science can be used for terrible, and has been used, mm-hmm. terrible, terrible evil. I did a, a blog post once on LTI talking about Zyklon B and the idea that it was... You know, what the, uh, the Nazis used to poison the Jews was also used to save crops at one point. I mean, so you have, you have there a demonstration of how what the, the same gas that was used to do one of the most monstrous evils the world has ever seen was also used to protect crops and to produce food for people. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's the science of developing the gas was not good or bad in and of itself outside of moral considerations about how we're going to use that science, it can be used for either, as you said, good or bad. It can Hmm. produce life-saving, life-affirming medicines and and technologies, or it can produce an atomic bomb that does unspeakable evil.
1: When you were talking about the history of things here in America, there was one figure I was kind of surprised you didn't mention, and I think we should touch on a little bit, and that was Margaret Singer and Planned Uh, Parenthood. Could you uh, say what role that she had in all of this?
0: Yeah, Margaret Sanger, it's funny you mention her because I think several years ago I made a vow that I was not going to give Margaret Sanger any more air than I thought she ever deserved uh, as far as talking about her. Margaret Sanger is an interesting character because for the left, if you hear about her, she was the champion of individual rights. She made it possible for people to have access to birth control. Uh, oftentimes, what they leave out is that she was an unspeakably horrible person as far as how she saw other human beings mm-hmm. uh, there's a story about what activated Margaret Sanger, and she was in the early tw- early twentieth century uh, as far as coming against like the Comstock laws against uh, a, against indecency and things that she was fighting against uh, where where the The idea of what animated Margaret Sanger is this famous story of how she went to this woman who had had multiple multiple children. And the, the act of just constantly having children and raising them had just worn this woman down until she died. And then she was there as she was sitting there with that woman and hearing about the advice that she'd been given, which was just terrible advice by the way. The handling of this woman's life had been terrible, and, and I believe that this woman deserved all of the pity and emotional response that Margaret Singer had. The mm-hmm. idea though, was at that, that moment that this is what activated her to champion for, for women's right to access to, to uh, abortion or to birth control. Uh, but but what? it's not really what happened. What happened was Margaret Singer sat in that house and saw that dead woman and by her own words realized that these were people that should not be allowed to breed. Uh, before she started the birth control movement, she actually considered calling it Neo-Malthusian movement. And so Margaret Sanger was committed to the idea that population had to be controlled and there were certain groups of people that did not need to be allowed to breed and that we should be selectively breeding the right people. And so her, her emotion, that empathy that she had at that moment wasn't for this woman, that no woman should have to die like that, but that this woman should never have been allowed to breed at all. She was just in circumstances where it was dangerous for her to breed because she couldn't control it, because she was of that lower form of life, basically, of human beings that ought not to be allowed to breed. There are a lot of people that will tag Margaret Singer as racist. Now, I'm going to say this. I think that there's no doubt that she was racist based on the things that she said. But I've always said I don't like calling Margaret Singer a racist because I think it's too incomplete a term because it was not being, being a part of the right race would in no way protect you from Margaret Singer's hatred. Uh, she, she liked a specific group of people from a specific group uh, socioeconomically and racially. And, and so it was, it, she was really, I mean, and genuinely, I remember my surprise when I was asked to write an article about her, I was reading what I would consider to be a hagiography of her, I mean, where somebody was just doing their best to make her sound like a good person. And given all of their efforts that they were giving, uh, they still couldn't make her do it because she was just awful. I mean, she she abandoned her family to go to Europe to, to live a life where it was clear that she was being adulterous against her family. She allowed family members to sit in jail and to go through. Her sister actually did a hunger strike on behalf of her movement to, to forward the movement at a time where Margaret Singer was hiding in Europe. And so she so had all this stuff going on where even somebody who loved Singer and was doing their best to try to make her sound like a good person uh, demonstrated that this was somebody who grew in political force and power at a time where really the results of what she was doing contributed to, to one of the most awful things that happened in American history, uh, and one of the most misunderstood or, or least understood or known things that happened in American history, which was the early 20th century eugenics movement here in the United States, mm-hmm. where from uh, Buck versus Bell, which I believe was a Supreme Court decision in 1927, uh, when Oliver Wendell Holmes said that you know we it. It's better for all the world that certain stocks of people no longer be allowed to have children. Till the start of World War II, there were some thirty-six thousand or more people forcibly um, sterilized in this country. Some of them for just being, you know, out of work for a long period of time, for being considered too dumb to reproduce, uh, all sorts of reasons. That IQ tests were offered, and and this was stuff that was part of the earliest twentieth century. The reason that Margaret Sanger is still championed today, she has somehow come out of that whole thing washed clean by the liberal side of things, by the people who champion her, that have been able to somehow get all of that bad stuff off of her public record and just champion her for what they consider the great victory of birth control. Uh, And even that has some serious questions as far as what it's done to affect our country that she wanted to go. But Margaret Singer started what would ultimately become Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the country in the United States. and And that is where her... Claim to fame comes in all of this uh, was, that, but at the at the outset of it, at the very root of it, there was a virulent eugenics movement that Margaret Sanger was pushing. And what made Mar- Margaret Sanger distinguish from everybody else was that she has, from what I've read, was undoubtedly a passionate and very well and very good public speaker. So she was a very, she was passionate and could and could represent her views very well in front of an audience. Very charismatic person.
1: It, from what I'm gathering here, because when I was Listeners, I this thing that a lot of Protestants today, I mean, we would, a lot of Protestants practice birth control as well, and even Catholics can practice natural family planning. Very few of us are part of something such as, say, the quiver for a movement, and we say, yeah, we believe that we should limit our population some. We don't think we should just be having kids constantly. And so, on that point, we might agree with some things that Margaret Singer said, but the trouble I'm gathering from Singer's perspective wasn't just that she said, this is your choice to make. That She was looking and saying, this is my choice to make for you.
0: Absolutely. That there are people that should not be breeding, and mm-hmm. that we need to find some way to limit them <laughs> mm-hmm. and to encourage the people that should be breeding to breed more and to and find mm-hmm. ways to limit the breeding of those people that should not. Yeah, I agree with you. What happens is that we look back at this sanitized Margaret Sanger that's given to us, the, oftentimes the mediums that are trying to make her out to be something that she wasn't, and what we see is somebody who is offering us the choice for things that we think sound so wonderful, like birth spacing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to have more distance between one child and another so that our resources aren't stretched. And we think, well, that was what Margaret Sanger stood stood for. So, no, that is not what she stood for. And that was that was a part of her her. Her championing of, mm-hmm. of, of, sort of that sort of technological ability or, or medical ability was rooted in a larger vision of the world where it saw the right people, whatever that was that Margaret Singer de- defined it as, being able to breed more and the wrong people not being able to breed at all. Uh, you know, it would be best for all the world, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, that those people stopped breeding altogether. Uh, and that's just a monstrous viewpoint. I mean it is, a, it is a terrifying viewpoint, and it led to terrible things in other parts of the world, obviously shortly thereafter. This, by the way, Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court decision, never was overridden by anything. What happened was because the Nazis took the kind of ideas that we what we were dabbling in in the early 20th century and went crazy with them, eugenics just became an embarrassment. And so we never went back and actually changed the laws. It just was like we're not going to talk about that again and act like it never happened. And Edwin mm-hmm. Black has a great book on this called War Against the Weak, if anybody's interested in reading that.
1: Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about this, I'm, I'm also thinking that uh, Benjamin Weicker has been on the show before, and he wrote an excellent book t- called Ten Books That Screwed Up the World and five others that didn't help. And one of those books, <laughs> <laughs> one of those, th- there was an honorable mention in there of uh, Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, that one of the ten books that screwed up the world, he said, was uh, Margaret was Margaret Singer's book for pivot of civilization. If you go to Planned Parenthood today, you can't even buy this book from their website. That they don't want you to read it. Well, I've got a copy of it and I've read it, and it's pretty apparent to me why they don't want people to read. It, including that now, do you see a lot of racism and such in such? She had some really
0: wacky spiritual
1: ideas too.
0: Yes, she did. And late in her life. Uh, as she was long since removed from Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood as his organization, I, was, I, I think this is like 1961, if I'm not mistaken, had had put out letters to the organization as a national movement to try to limit the identification of the organization with Margaret Sanger. I mean they knew clearly at that point that she was a problem as far as what you're talking about like the pivot of civilization and and she's difficult. I said I, I actually was writing an article about her and stopped midway through the article because I thought she was just such a a horrid person. I decided there'd been enough written about her. I just didn't want to contribute any longer to having her out there. But what's most important I think as we get into the discussion of abortion, when you start to talk about all of this, the scope of history moving towards this there is this, the the side, the, the way that it is couched from the other side is ideas of freedom, choice, the ability to do these things, women shouldn't die, trying to procure abortions. Mm-hmm. All of these things are things that we would sympathize with. And hopefully right. we would have empathy with the women that are going through these things. Uh, but what all of them do, even the argument that the Supreme Court offers is all of them beg the question as to the identity of the unborn. I mean, for the Supreme Court to say that you have a right to privacy that is older than the Bill of Rights, older than our, public, uh, than our political parties, older than our public school system, all of these things, a right to make private, free decisions. Well, you and I, I don't think, would argue that we believe that we should, be, uh, we should have privacy that is honored by our community to an extent, uh, but as ma- I remember speaking out in California and this gentleman stood up and he was a he was faculty in the school that I was speaking and he said, "Well, Mr. Watts, women have a right to privacy and they have the right to make free decisions without the government's interference without the interference of the community I said, sir, I believe in privacy we use a tool at LCI that we call Trot Out the Toddler I said, so I'm with you I think that privacy is a very important concept radically important I'm, I'm a private guy I'm actually a very introverted guy when I'm not out there mm-hmm. talking I just want to be left alone to read Same and hang out with my family Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not interested in being a big, you know, out there. I'm not. I'm just not an extrovert. I'm very introverted. Hugh, uh, Ross so a,
1: Hugh Ross was on my show one time, and he's an Aspie just like I am. And he said that he would rather talk to one hundred people at once than talk to one person.
0: Yeah, I'm very comfortable. I've I've spoken to crowds of you know a couple thousand people out in the audience. That doesn't bother me at all. Uh, and And even when we're talking about the interaction of of talking to people afterwards where you 're answering questions, but when I go home from go back to the hotel at night yeah. i'm exhausted because yeah. that mm-hmm. that that interaction just draws for me because i 'm an i'm an introvert I, yeah. I I can do it i'm still doing, it, and I love doing it for because it, it helps me to sleep at night, because I feel like i'm doing something that I ought to be doing but it's not my choice of pastimes. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not fun for me. It's not a hobby. It's not something I want to do because it feeds me. I mean, I, I actually, there's a great emotional, as you would, I'm sure, know, too, an emotional and spiritual cost that goes with it uh, that has to be overcome. And so, uh, but as I said, we're out there. This guy says this to me about privacy being the issue. And so I say, and I used what we call Trot Out the Toddler. And I said, I'm a very private guy. I said, okay, but I put my hand on my hip. I said, sir, I have a two-year-old sitting next to me. This two-year-old little girl is my next-door neighbor. Every night in the privacy of her own home, her father viciously abuses her. Uh, every night, her life is one humiliation, degradation, and emotional and spiritual attack, one after another in the privacy of their own home. The only time she has any release from this is when she's out in public. I said, would it be okay with you if as a community we go into her house and we take her away from this abusive father, violating their privacy to protect her from that? Well, he said, yeah, of course it is. So, well, why? Why is that okay? And he said, "Well, because you can't do that, and said so well, why can't you do that? It's happening in the privacy of their own home. You just said privacy is an important thing. I agree with you, privacy is important, but now you're saying that we as a community ought to be to empower the 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 institutions of our communities, particularly child the protective services and the police department to violate the privacy of my next door neighbor to take a child out of their home for something that's happening that's a private matter. And he said, Well it's not a private matter. And I said, Why is it a private matter? It certainly is, it's going on their house And he finally said, Privacy is not a justification for killing or for hurting innocent human beings. He said, I, uh. I I agree with you. He said that's that's the question we have to answer, isn't it? That's the question that everybody's leaving off the table. When you talk about a historical scope that leads up to abortion, when that gentleman's sitting there telling me the women have a right to privacy, that's exactly the question you have to argue for. Are the unborn human, like you and me, or are they something else? Because if they are human, then we can no more justify their destruction and their, and their killing by appealing to privacy than my next-door neighbor can appeal to privacy to be able to beat his child or to beat his wife or to any other reason that we would say mm-hmm. that we ought to be able to protect the human beings in his house. All of these arguments that are being offered, but 90% of the arguments I deal with when I'm out on the road, they have presupposed the inhumanity unborn before we've ever even asked the question about what they are. They assume that they're not human. That happens in the same thing I mentioned earlier when we talked about 10,000 women dying everywhere from illegal abortions. Well, I know that's a lie. I know that's a lie because the other side has told me and given us statistics about that lie. And even Dr. Richard Tiefel, who says, there's just no way with only 40,000 women dying a year of reproductive age in the United States that a quarter of them were dying of, of, of bad abortions prior to 1973. It's just ridiculous. And the CDC tells us that that number is actually somewhere between like 60 to 500 people that were dying every year of, of of bad abortions. But the problem is that's a tragedy that those women are dying. Yeah. But the argument presupposes the inhumanity of the unborn because if the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are, then what you're telling me is that we ought to keep a law in place that keeps it legal for women to be able to make the free choice to destroy 1.2 million innocent human lives every year in order to protect them from the, the devastating and terrible tragic consequences of bad decision making. If they're you know, human, then that's a terrible argument. You know, when you were talking about
1: the things that the people on the left appeal to that is going by abortion, I, I was thinking that when I lived in Charlotte with a roommate, I was in my bedroom one night reading Aristotle because, you know, that's what geeks like us do. Right, <laughs> yeah, that's fun. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I started hearing, thinking about some of the things he was saying about ethics and formed this argument. We could uh, take a make a list of reasons why women might want to have an abortion. Let's say, like, I don't think I'm responsible enough to handle this baby, or I don't have the resources, or I want a career, or I want to have sexual freedom. And many of us would look at it and say, on the surface, we don't think those are bad things in themselves. We could say those are good things, that we know the The abortionists want abortion for things they perceive to be good. But the question you have to ask is, are you using a good means to get those?
0: Yes. -hmm. Yeah, and the question – we ask this question a lot, and it leads to what I talked about when I say trot out the toddler. Would you ever use the, the justification that you just gave me for an abortion to justify killing something that you would uncontroversially accept as a human being? Would you ever say that you should be able to kill two-year-olds for the reason that you just gave me? Would you ever say that you should be able to kill ten-year-olds for the reason that you just gave me? If the answer is no, mm-hmm. then those are not justifications for killing another human being. They're not, they don't raise, however important they are. And I, I agree with you. These are very important things. Yeah. Uh, I think a woman's right to be equal in the marketplace is incredibly important. I have two daughters. I have a wife. My life is filled with women that I love and respect and admire, and I want all of them to be able to have access to all of the things that anybody else has access to by virtue of their talents, abilities, and willingness to work hard to reach particular goals. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that in order to be able to reach those goals, they they are justified in killing another human being. However much I want them to reach their goals, if there were a toddler that they had to kill to reach those goals, I would say absolutely not, because that would turn you into something um, morally wrong. (laughs) that's a morally wrong thing to do. We don't kill human beings to reach our goals. But in this particular case... People said rather thoughtlessly, I think, because they haven't considered the question, what are the unborn, offer up justifications they would never offer to justify killing another human being that they, that they uncontroversially accepted as one of us, a two-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old. They're never going to say it's okay to kill them because I value my privacy, because I have to have equality in the marketplace, because I just don't want to have a child right now. They've decided that the unborn are not human, or they haven't even thought about it while they make those arguments. And, and we have a responsibility to point that out to them, to say, have you considered the humanity of the unborn? Because I don't think that you have by virtue of your conversations. And, and I worked in a, obviously having worked in a pregnancy center, I would see this on an emotional and human level where people would come in. And I remember particularly this one father that was saying, uh, when he was there with his wife and they had four kids. And he said, I can't have another kid right now. I can't have another kid right now. And, and we was resisting any conversation that there was something that we could do to help them with this. Because he said, I simply can't have another kid right now. And so we got him into the ultrasound room and let him see his ult- the ultrasound. And, and he, on his own, without us having to tell us, realized, I already have another kid right now. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, his thing was, I can't have this now. And then once he realized that he said, it's already there. And this is where he said, You're, you keep acting like this is something you can avoid. The child is here. The question is, can you kill your child now? The question is no longer you can't have it you have him he's here Uh, what the question is are you justified in killing your child right now and as that man looked at that ultrasound he realized that what he was saying as you and I were talking about all of these good reasons I don't want a child right now because it would interfere with my education it'll interfere with my work it'll take it'll it'll take resources away from my family once you're pregnant the argument that we're putting forth as pro-lifers is that you already have that child what Mm -hmm. you want is justification to kill an innocent human being. And if you want to be able to kill another human being, you need to be able to argue why you have that right to do that because you shouldn't be able to just do it carte blanche without any consideration for what you're doing. There needs to be a case made that they are not human in the same way that you and I are or they don't matter morally in the same way that you and I are if we're going to justify you allowing them to take their life. Because it's too late to say, I don't want to be pregnant once you're pregnant. That's just the, the condition yeah. you found yourself in. Yeah.
1: Some people might think I'm nitpicking when I say something like this. But usually if I'm on Facebook and I see some young couple making announcements, announcement say, we're going to be parents. Uh, I always like to stop and say, no, you're already parents. That's right. At this point, what, what's going to happen in the future is you're going to see your child in person.
0: Yes, that's right. You are, you are a parent. We were just recently dealing with somebody who um, had some fears that there were some chromosomal abnormalities with their child before they were born, and my wife, talking to her, kept encouraging the mother that was struggling with this, and this woman never considered abortion. That wasn't what was going on, but she was emotionally struggling with it, and her language was very dehumanizing, uh, and, and my wife encouraged her. She said, you know, she said, name your girl. Talk to your girl. You know, she, she is your daughter now as she develops inside of you. Don't distance yourself from her because you're afraid there might be something wrong. Recognize that, you know, it is your child already. They're already here. They're already a part of your life. As you pointed out, you're already a parent. That's an excellent point.
1: Yeah. Now, what we're getting into, though, is that we have to answer this big question. We haven't really got to yet, but you've been saying that if you're curing an innocent human, if you're curing an innocent human, okay, well are we really doing that in abortion? Why should we think we're curing a human?
0: That, and that's where we focus our arguments on. When I go into a place and talk, I have a three, three, position, three points that I make, no matter how little time that I have, or no matter how, big, how, how long a time that I have, I just explore deep, more deeply the different questions. And the question is that we say we have to simplify this discussion. We simplify the debate, as we've been talking about so far, by focusing on one question. What are they? What are the unborn? If the unborn are human, like you and I, and we have the same obligations and duties to them that we have other human beings, then abortion is the unjustified taking of innocent human life and ought to be restricted and forbidden. Uh, If the unborn are not human, then abortion is no different, as Greg Kokel of Sand Reason says, than a tooth extraction. There's no moral component to it whatsoever. It doesn't need a defense because it is nothing if they don't matter and if they're not human in the same way that you and I are. So we have to focus in on that question, what are they? And as I said, about 98% of people have never even thought about it, and they beg the question ever before they think about it that the unborn are not human in the same way that you and I are because they offer justifications they wouldn't offer for killing other people. Now, before we step forward, I would like to point out one other mistake that we make when we talk about these sorts of things, and that is that as before we get to answering the question, what are they?, Uh, before Cardinal Rassenberger became Pope Benedict, he coined a term that I thought was just brilliant. And he said that we live under uh, a a tyranny of relativism. Uh, And so one of the things that we have to watch out for is that many people that we talk to in the public don't have the slightest idea how to differentiate between like an objective moral claim and a personal preference claim. And so they don't see the difference between subjective claims. And they'll say things to you, like if you don't want an abortion, don't have one. Well, the key word in there is I ask people all the time when I'm talking to audiences, especially young people, I say, what's the key term in there? And they struggle to see it. And I say, The key term is like. I never said I don't like abortion. What I'm arguing is that I think abortion is wrong. And so we have to realize that there are real moral rights and wrongs that dictate or govern our behavior towards other people. And, and when I say that abortion is wrong, it's different from my saying that I love bacon. If you follow me on Facebook, you know that that's not a lie. I love bacon. I talk about it a lot because people kind of expect me to talk about it a lot, but I genuinely do love to eat bacon. I had a woman come after me after a talk I gave uh, earlier this year, and she said, you really shouldn't talk so much about bacon. I said, well, why? What's the problem? And she said, well, you shouldn't eat bacon. I said, why? And she said, because pigs are smarter than dogs. And I said, okay, do you want me to start eating dogs then? Uh, And and she didn't think that was funny, but I thought it was. But uh, but the the claim that I like bacon is a personal preference claim. My daughter, most of her life, has not liked bacon. She has since changed. Uh, But for most of her life, she hated bacon. And she and I would talk about it, and she would say, you know, Daddy, I put bacon in my mouth. I don't like it. You put bacon in your mouth, and you do. And that's the only thing going on here. We just have a difference of opinion on bacon. But those are preference claims. I like bacon, I like Coca-Cola, I like apples. These are things that I like that my liking of them in no way obligates anyone else to like them. But most of the young people that I talk to can't differentiate between I like bacon and I like apples and it's a statement that I think abortion is wrong because they see it as a personal preference claim and they don't understand that we've moved into the realm of objective moral claims. And this goes, by the way, extends even to Christians Mm -hmm. who I'll talk to and they'll say to me, hey, Mr. Watts, after I talk, they'll come up and say, look, I'm personally against abortion. Uh, but I think that it ought to be legal. And we asked this question. as something that all of us at not see I'll do. I said, why, why are you personally against abortion? Why do you describe yourself as personally pro-life? And I said, well, I think that the unborn are human. Like you said in your talk, I think that the, they're human beings like the rest of us. And I said, okay. And why do you consider yourself – why should you say then it ought to be legal? And he said, well, I don't think I should to tell anybody else what to do. I said, can I repeat back to you what you just said? And he said, yeah, what, what did I say? you just told me that you think that, that abortion is wrong. You think it's personally wrong. Because it kills innocent human beings, but you don't think you ought to be able to tell other people not to kill innocent human beings." And he thought about it for a second. He's like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. And I was like, no, it doesn't. And I had that conversation. I've had it maybe 60 or 70 times in the last year mm-hmm. with Christians that are telling me these things. And so this, this inability to differentiate between the fact that when I say abortion is wrong, I mean it's wrong the same way if I said rape is wrong, or child abuse is wrong. Or torture is wrong. These are things that are wrong by virtue of the act and the and the, the, and the agents being acted against. And so, and it's wrong for all people at all times. There's that's you know, and I tell audiences to say, hey, look, there are people that like rape. What do we call them? They said rapists. So, that's right. But their like for rape, their enjoyment of rape, their wish to be able to rape women, doesn't make rape okay for them. We recognize that there may be something dysfunctional about them, that they're not processing things right, there's some psychiatric issue going on, some chemical imbalance, something. Or they may just be rotten people. Mm -hmm. Their love of rape doesn't make rape okay for them. Mm -hmm. The same way that my distaste for abortion is not what makes abortion bad for me, but okay for somebody else. When I say rape is wrong, I mean it's wrong for all people at all times. When I say abortion is wrong, if the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are, it's wrong for all people at all times. And that's something that we really have to look after because we take for granted but if I can make a case for my position that people will agree with me. But the majority of kids today would identify themselves as pro-life when you talk to them. The problem is they identify themselves as pro-life, but they don't see how their being pro-life has anything to do with anybody else. Mm-hmm. But they can't extend that to beyond just to the subjective view. Well, sure, I think the unborn are human beings, but who am I to tell other people what they can do? And so we have to fight against that first. It seems
1: like a lot of it has been bought into by our society, but... Places such a high premium on tolerance, and the problem that it used to be John three sixteen was the most quoted Bible verse, but today it's Matthew seven one, and even then it's just the first two words usually that the most quoted.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and there is a there is a sense that they're doing something noble by tolerating things that are just horrible, and and and, and a, a vicious consistency that you see that we'll get to later when we talk about other things. So, So let's get to making our case, okay? Those are mistakes that people make before you talk about it. You've got to watch out for those mistakes because, as you know, fallacies corrupt the entire conversation. Mm -hmm. And so we have to root them out before we even get started because I don't want to spend time later on downstream having to re-fight over everything over and over again. So once those things are rooted out, there's two components that we have to do. One of them, we have to demonstrate the humanity of the unborn. And that's the scientific question. When people say we don't know what they are, we have to demonstrate what they are. The second question is, or the second component of the discussion is, we're going to have to argue that if they are human, that they do matter, and that they're the type of things that ought to be protected and that we, ought, that we have moral duties and obligations to. It's a philosophical question. It has nothing to do with science. It is something that we have to, uh, to use philosophy to, to, to explore. So let's get to the first question, because people will say, and, and as uh, Justice Blackmun said in Ruby, wait, we just don't know what they are. We're never going to know what they are. There's no way to know what they are. Well, that's demonstrably false. We know exactly what they are. We know that the unborn are human from the moment that they come into existence, in the sense that we're trying to determine when a human organism is present, an independent human organism is present, and we know when that happens. And from the moment a conception process is done, the moment we have a child, a human organism there, even as a single-celled organism, we know that at that moment that we have a whole, distinct, and living human being, from the moment that it comes into existence, whole, distinct, and living from the moment that they come into existence. And this is science of embryology that tells us this. This isn't a pro-life view or a Christian view. It's what embryology teaches us about the nature of human life and when that human organism first comes into existence. It's whole and that it is not a part of anything else. I had a young man come up to me after a talk recently and he said, do you think that eggs, women's eggs and sperms have a right to exist? And so that's ridiculous. They're parts. They're constituent parts of another whole. Of course they don't have a right to exist. Because they're just a part of another whole. The whole they're a part of, if it's a fully functioning human being or just if it's a living human being, let's put it that way, that organism has rights. That individual has rights, but their parts don't have rights. So when I say that at the moment we have a a zygote, a single-celled human organism, now we have a whole life with an internally coordinated growth and development. Uh, All it needs is time and the proper environment, and it will develop into the later stages of, of all hum, that all humanity goes through, it's a whole being in and of itself that will have its own parts that serve it that whole later on as it grows. It's distinct, it's different from any cell and the body of its mother and its father, and it is living. It has all the things that are necessary to be considered alive, including metabolism, uh, including uh, the idea of its growth, uh, cellular reproduction. Uh, it responds to irritability, and this isn't even something that is wholly, by the way, only accepted by the pro-life side. The sophisticated pro-choice side, when we're talking about the scholars and the academics, almost universally accept what I just said as uncontroversial. Okay. Uh, we're talking about Peter Singer in his book, Practical Ethics, where he says it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to a member of the species, Homo sapiens. Whether being as a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt from the first moments of existence, an embryo Uh, Can feed from human sperm and eggs as a human being. Nobody on the other side, I could give you quote after quote after quote from the other side, none of them argue against the humanity as being a human organism. They just want to argue that there are certain human organisms that don't have rights, that aren't Mm -hmm. persons. They want to separate it out. And so there there are very few exceptions as far as some things that people argue about. If you want to talk about those for a minute, I'm willing to. Uh, uh, but when we talk about the whole distinct and living human beings from the moment it comes into existence, this is an almost uncontroversial statement uh, for all people from pro-life and pro-choice sides that argue in this area.
1: Now, before we get to those exceptions, one thing I, I do like to talk about, because I've, I've got a good friend who's also very interested in pro-life projects, and I called him right back and said, you know, I was just thinking about something that uh, it seems whenever we argue against atheists online that if it comes to the question of God's existence – Let's talk about science. Comes to the question of morality. Let's talk about science. Whatever topic it is that comes up, science is seen as a final arbiter until we get to abortion. Yeah. And then they suddenly want to go with philosophy more of in science.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And also a friend of mine who was debating a gentleman up in Michigan said that the the guy he was debating, the pro-choice guy, kept bringing up religion. And he said, my friend finally said, I had not at any point mentioned my faith... My religion, or use my religion in any way to justify the position I'm arguing for. You're the one that keeps bringing it up. Uh, the guy kept using, uh, appealing to religion to, to buttress his position. It is interesting that in this particular case, for the most part, uh, they they want to to get away from the science. Like, well, the science just isn't on their side. And the, the few people that do try to argue against it from a scientific position, well, they just face a, a terrible uphill battle with, with trying to demonstrate that what we don't have at that moment is a whole distinct and living human organism even alan gutmacher who was once the head of planned parenthood said at one time prior to this becoming an issue later on when he was fighting it for for abortion rights he said that in regards to whether or not they're whole distinct living from the moment they come into existence he says that as far as i know this has never been argued against i mean that he knows nowhere in the medical literature that there's ever been a position or an opinion that they weren't human being from the moment they come into existence and that An unborn child isn't a human child. Everybody's accepted that. There's just other considerations that are going to be argued.
1: Well, before we talk about the exceptions now, I'd like to let everyone know that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and I am Nick Peters, your host. Right now, we've got Jay Watts with us of the Life Training Institute, but if you're going to be here next week, you have a very interesting show. Uh, Jay knows my guest who's coming on pretty well from what I gather My guest next week is going to be the most hated man in America. I mean, I I know every one of us here hates him. (laughs) I mean, you you hate him, don't you, Jay?
0: I do. I hate Mike Adams. (laughs)
1: Mike Adams is going to be my guest. And, you know, I'm just going to hate to have him on here. But he's going to come on and we're going to be talking about abortion and politics and why it is Christians need to stand up. So I hope you're here next week to talk about Mike Adams and hear how much we hate him.
0: Yeah, and he, and he loves to be hated. <laughs>
1: yeah, and we'll explain all that next week. But uh, <clears throat> for now let's uh, talk about these exceptions
0: you were talking about. What are they exactly? There are a few people that will try to argue against these. <clears throat> one of the first things you'll hear is the argument about twinning. They'll try to say, by the way, what's going to be interesting about every one of the ones I'm going to talk about from the scientific position is that none of them will have anything really to do with abortion, most of these are going to come into place when you start to talk about embryonic stem cell research, therapeutic cloning, things like that. But they will want to argue against the idea that from the moment that we come into existence that we're human. And one of them is they're going to say twinning. They're going to say because that there is this uh, bizarre capacity within human beings that within the first 10 to 14 days – to divide up and to become two separate human beings, and even to recombine and go back to being one after that division has happened. Both of those things are possible, although they're both rare, given the statistical analysis of of all humanity. Uh, But since those things are possible, it doesn't make sense to say that all human beings come into existence from the moment of conception, uh, because there are human beings out there that didn't come into existence until after the formation of what they call the primitive streak. Once the primitive streak, which will become the, the center of the neurological part of the, the body as you start with the spinal cord and all that starts to develop, but once the primitive streak forms, you get cellular differentiation. And so what they're saying is that prior to the primitive streak forming, the that can split up and become two, it may recombine and become one, and so it doesn't make any sense to say there's an organism there because there may be two organisms there, or there may be two and then become one. And so since there's this weird period, we shouldn't say until after the primitive streak forms that we have another human life there an organism has come into existence. Well, uh, Patrick Lee responds to that, uh, Catholic philosopher Patrick Lee, by talking about planaria, what's commonly known as flatworms. And he says, and flatworms, if you've ever seen a flatworm, you can see this on YouTube, by the way, you pull up you know, videos of flatworms being cut up into pieces. Mm-hmm. If you cut a flatworm in half, and well, what happens is that one half swims off in one direction and the other half swims off in the other direction. And then within a week, you'll have two flatworms completely. I mean, immediately you've got two independent organisms now operating independent of each other. And I've actually seen somebody do it five times. So they cut this uh, planaria up into five different pieces and all five pieces swam away. Within a week, you had now they had developed into full five planaria and so he says look flatworms, that's a weird thing about flatworms if you cut them in half they become two flatworms if you cut them into five pieces they can become five flatworms Uh, and all those flatworms are independent he said but given that bizarre capacity that they have to become multiple things by being dissected or bisected in that way so you wouldn't say that there was no flatworm prior to them being cut in half that wouldn't make sense there had to be a flatworm there to cut in half to become two or to become five and so in the same way it doesn't make sense for us to say that even though we have this strange pe- capacity for qu- twinning, which, by the way, the capacity for twinning seems to have a biological mechanism in it because it runs in families, which means that the organism that comes into existence from the very end, it's, it's in the nature of that organism, that specific organism to twin, as part of its, its, the genetic nature. But if there has to be an organism there to twin. And then there have to be organisms there to recombine. And so that doesn't do any damage to the view that from the moment of conception comes that we have an independent organism because the organism must be present to go through these events. These are events. They're not substantial changes in what they are. They're just events. Now, in one event... Now, we don't understand what happens with twinning. You have either one organism having another organism come off of it, or you may have one organism die and two new organisms come to existence after it. It's a very mysterious thing. But what we know for, for, for certain is that we had to have an, an organism there for the event of twinning to happen. And that organism is by its very nature human. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that, that people will bring up uh, when they're talking about the site. Psych-, psych. Now, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with P.Z. Myers. Oh, yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, I am. <laughs> but P.Z. Myers is, is a biologist. And he has a, a friend of mine, a person that I know, who is actually an atheist and pro-lifer. And she was giving a talk at an atheist convention and did a debate. And P.Z. Myers stood up and said that it is garbage that life begins at conception because life began four billion years ago and we live within a continuum of life. Life begets life begets life. And it makes no sense from a scientific point to say that life began at conception because there had to be life to bring that life into existence. And so there is no clear marker of life beginning. There is just this long continuum of life that began as a single celled organism four billion years ago and has worked its way through the evolutionary processes to today. Now, this sounds Really clever, I think, when you say that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it's a problem of perspective that you're dealing with there. PZ Myers is acting as if we can't differentiate between when life begins because we have this long continuum of life and life beginning, life beginning, life and life transforming and changing and all those things happening. What we're saying is not that life begins as far as like sense of genesis at conception. What we're saying is that at the moment of conception, we have a new independent organism. Certainly, there had to be life prior to that to bring that life into existence, and certainly the two cells that combined through the process of fertilization were alive. Nobody's arguing that. What we're arguing is that once those two constituent parts, the sperm and the egg, came together, what we have now is a new whole, a new whole, an independent organism. And Dr. Ronan O'Rahilly and Fabio Mueller in Human Embryology and Teratology say that although it is a continuous process, life is a continuous process. Fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oos- with the eucy. So you have this, this moment of a new life coming into existence, a new organism. We're not saying life begins in the sense of biogenesis back four billion years ago, every yeah. time it life uh, comes into existence, which is what P. Z. Myers is taking this sort of grand view of life. We're talking about the recognition that we have an independent organism here, and quite frankly, I personally think that that argument, you know, that P.Z. Myers is making is strange coming from a biologist whose whole job is his ability to identify the two independent organisms and understand what it And one of the things that I say that I've said and actually in Q&A in response to this was I hear this a lot from people, but the fact of the matter is that I have never once heard of an abortionist. Throughout all of the history of abortion, they got so confused by the continuum of life and its inability to differentiate life from life that they accidentally killed the mother instead of the unborn child. As far as I know, there's about 100% efficient rate of success for them being able to differentiate the life within the mother that they are executing and excising out of her with brutal and tragic efficiency. Uh, and the life of the mother itself they understand the difference between the two organisms very well or else the practice of abortion wouldn't exist at all
1: when I, I heard PZ's argument it, it actually made me think hmm, PZ Myers is becoming a pantheist that's very interesting <laughs> it, but, and I was I mean, is, is this guy actually saying something like for instance that because I can't know when life as a whole begins that I might not be able to know say when my birthday is yeah
0: it, it, it really made no sense I, that we can't distinguish independent events within this continuum like yeah, yeah it, 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 but it, it is the kind of argument that you offer that I think, and I don't want to say I mean I don't know P.Z. Myers I, I don't want to get I don't want to say anything personal about the guy, but um, it's the kind of argument that I think sounds much more clever than it really is. It, it's the kind of thing yeah. that would trump somebody that wasn't really prepared and that doesn't, hadn't been studied in this, and I could see it really tripping someone who was just getting going and getting their feet under them in public arguments, it's not the kind of argument that I would ever see, obviously, the, the authors of human embryology and teratology having much trouble addressing, uh, or uh, you know Frank Beckwith or Christopher Kayser or Patrick Lee or J.P. Moreland or any of the people that are, are genuinely sophisticated in their thinking on this issue. And So it, it strikes me much more of a trick than it is anything else. Mm-hmm. We... I remember once
1: seeing something on uh, P.Z. Myers' page talking about videos like the silent cream and such. And I'll be bluntly honest, I have never seen the silent cream because I'm one of those people with an extremely weak stomach. Mm-hmm. I do not think I could take it. But he talked about seeing things like that. And said, yeah, that doesn't scare me because, frankly, all I see is meat. And meat does not scare me. And when I heard about thought... You know, I'd be very uh, really tempted to go over to his house and meet his family and say, "Well, you've got a lovely bunch of meat right
0: here, and just, just see how he responds to that. Yeah, it was weird I remember the post you're talking about, and, and I, I actually walked away from it thinking, "What an odd post!" Because it wasn't just the, as the insensitivity of referring to human remains as meat, which I thought obviously is just is, is awful. Mm-hmm. But there was this strange sort of cavalier attitude that he expressed in that. I mean, he's, I'm a biologist, and I see bloody things all the time, and you can't scare me with your images. And it, it was there was this taunting almost, as if he were some sort of war hero. I mean, he's talking about. Things that he's dissected in the lab, he's like, I've seen things, man. I'm like, you're really not. You don't really fall into the realm of the war hero that's been out on the mm-hmm. battlefield. You know, you're you're a biologist, and I agree that you've probably seen some some nasty things in your lab. But let's not act like we're some sort of of, of hero that's been out there in the midst of the gore of, of humans dying valiantly and sacrificing their life. You know, you've you've been dissecting animals. Congratulations, you, you've gotten used to blood. Uh, it was it was a very strange post, but there was a sense he was very dismissive of. In that, he was arguing against the idea of using that sort of graphic images because it just had no effect on him, and it won't affect him and his view on things. I think in the absence of anything else, I, I agree with him. I don't think graphic images in absence of argument are a great thing, but we don't use them in absence of argument. They're used in the presence of arguments for the humanity of the unborn. So. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, the, the only other thing I would say that is important to cover before we move to philosophy, though, is that it, 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 it goes again to a root of problems that... <laughs> that we have, sorry about that, my dog has a toy that's a little loud, that uh, we we sometimes, the same way we have a problem with with relativism, we have a problem understanding the difference between constructed and developing things. Uh, And so we look at things that are constructed or built, because we live in a time where we can build amazing things. And and when you look at, like, the, the MacBook Air that I have in front of me, it makes sense to ask the question, at what point did you add something to this device that we could now call it a MacBook Air. There was a process where this thing was built, and there were things gradually added to it. And and as a collection of parts, it makes sense then to say... At some point, you added something that made that a MacBook Air. What was that? And so people think in those terms sometimes about human development, and they don't understand that there's a difference between constructed things and developing things. And so we have to point out to them that, look, when I say that we have a human being developing from the moment it comes into existence, the genetic code and the, the internal coordinated development, we're going to see an expression of things that are there as they develop and they mature. Uh, I have red hair. I've had red hair from the moment that I came into existence. I just had to develop to the point that you could see that. I have less red hair now in my 40s than I had in my early 30s and my 20s when I had a full head of hair. Mm -hmm. Even that propensity to lose hair was a genetic predisposition that was there from the moment that I came into existence but that only was seen and expressed when I matured to a certain point and hormone levels in my body rose to a certain level, specifically testosterone. Mm -hmm. So there are things that we see. My daughter is a type one diabetic. She was a type one diabetic from the moment that she came into existence. We just didn't know about that until she was eight years old and she was diagnosed because it expressed itself. We're not Machines that are being added on to, so that you can say, at what point did they become a human being? We are human beings from the moment that we come into existence, and what you see are the expression of traits genetically that are already there from the moment we came into existence, not the addition of capacities that aren't ours by our very nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you know, um, David Boonin, in a book he's got on the defense of abortion, he talks about having a picture on his desk of a little boy named Eli, who's his son, he has a few pictures, and he says, throughout, this is the same little boy, I don't doubt that, and then he says, that in his, top floor of his desk, he keeps another picture, and this one was taken, before he was born, and he says, and that's still the same boy, and what I'm going to be arguing, in this book, is that it would have been, morally permissible, to end his life, at that point.
0: Yes, and and by the way, for anybody who's interested in reading, what I consider to be, and what most people, I think, consider to be the best philosophical defense of abortion rights, of the mm-hmm. pro-choice position, David Boonin's book, A Defense of Abortion, is it. It's, it's a stellar mm-hmm. book. I learn from it every time I read it. Mm-hmm. But he is offering this idea of... And that's going to get us now into the philosophical question. Right. Uh, because what David Boonin is saying is that I don't doubt, I don't argue that that's not my son. Mm-hmm. I, that is still my son, but I'm going to argue that at that point, my son was the kind of being that it was okay for me to kill versus the, the more mature version of my son where it would have been considered murder or morally wrong for me to kill. He accepts the, the immorality of killing his son at this one age, while he rejects the immorality of killing his son at another age, while never at any point denying that all along that spectrum that is the same biological entity of his son. Mm-hmm. So what kind of case can be made? I mean, why would
1: someone think it's okay to cure before birth? but not okay after birth. I, mean, I think even uh, even um, Peter Singer has said pro-lifers are certainly right about this. There is nothing magical about the birth canal that suddenly, suddenly says life to a yeah. child.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, see, and what, we, what we do is, first I make a case where I try to talk and, and I tell a quick story, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell it very quickly here to sort of start to frame the philosophical conversation. So we have to move away from science. The, embryo- the science of embryology tells us again born a human from the moment they come into existence hold distinct living human life, human beings uh, but what we have to determine is whether or not human beings are the kind of thing that we can't kill because they may not be and I ask a diagnostic question when I talk to people on campuses I say would it be objectively wrong and I stress objectively would it be objectively wrong for me to kill you right now and that's a question that would say answer yes well I know a lot about them, I know that we have a similar moral background That we have both believe that there's something wrong we can do to other human beings We both believe it would be objectively wrong for me to kill another human being without extreme justification, which I assume means at that point that it's safe to say that they believe in objective moral values and the identity of human beings as something of value. And so the question is, why are we falling apart? Why are we apart on this issue, on the issue of abortion? Now, I do have, by the way, occasionally people say, no, it would not be objectively wrong for you to kill me right now. That's an important thing to know from their point of view, by the way, because I need to know there's no reason for me to try to argue that abortion ought to be impermissible because it's immoral with somebody that doesn't believe that anything is immoral, or at least that's the point that they're going to try to argue with me. That there's no such thing as morality and that all morality is subjective or personally held. Uh, And so... That's, that's a, there's no reason to say, well, I'm going to continue talking about abortion because then I'm going to have to backtrack and try to figure out what's wrong with their worldview that they think there's nothing wrong, that there's nothing mm-hmm. that they can do wrong, and that all choices that people make are legitimate in the sense that they have the right to make whatever one they want because there are no such things as moral values that govern our behavior. But if they say, yes, it's wrong for me to kill you, well, then now I have to start to talk to them about what's differentiating our view. And I ask the question, why? What, what is different about you? What changed about you? What, what transformed about you? What substantially happened to you from the time that you were young uh, in your mother's womb, let's say 20 weeks gestation or 16 or even 10 weeks to the, the more mature person standing in front of me right now, that if I killed you now, it would be considered murder. But if I killed you then, it was a legally protected right. What transformation occurred? between those two moments that made you the kind of thing that is wrong to kill when you were once the kind of thing that there was no moral component to killing you whatsoever. And so when you ask that question, what well, we, we use what philosopher, Stephen Schwartz, called the SLED acronym uh, to sort of sort through it. Now, it's not a trick. It's just a way of understanding the kind of arguments that we're going to get, and it gives us a chance to categorize them as well as we work our way through them. They're going to answer something about sl- the SLED acronym is size, level of development, environment or degree of dependency and so i'm not saying all the arguments are going to somehow fit into there and so it gives us a clarity of being able to understand what are the the properties what are the functions what are the capacities that they're rooting all the moral value that we have onto this is an important thing because the person that says it's wrong to kill me now, but it's not wrong to kill me then. Whenever they say then is, whether it's pre-born or whether it's later in life when they've lost certain intellectual capacities, like they're in an irreversible coma or, or any kind of state where they see no return to the person that they were. And In their mind, they're, they're separating the human being into two different things. Uh, what Robert George always calls a, a, a sort of dualism that they're arguing, that in every human life there exist two different beings. There is the human animal, essentially, uh, the basic human being, the human organism that exists. And then upon that human organism, there will be an expression of a human person. That person has rights. The human animal, the being, the organism itself does not. And so there's going to be some capacities or some traits that bestow upon you the rights that we're looking at and, and the rights that we're appealing to when we say it's wrong to kill somebody. It's, wrong, it's objectively wrong for me to kill you. Why is it objectively wrong for me to kill you? Because you have value. And if you don't have value by virtue of being a human being, you have to have value by virtue of something else other than what you are. Well, Christopher Kayser calls what we argue the inclusive view of human value. And what we're arguing is that you're value by virtue of what you you have value by virtue of what you are, intrinsic value by virtue of being a human being, that from the moment human beings come into existence till their death, they're the kind of thing that we have moral duties and obligations to. But when the, the person that's going to argue that abortion is okay, more often than not, and we'll, I'll leave aside the people that don't do this, but more often than not they're going to say, similar to what uh, Boone was saying at that point, there are capacities, functions, things that you need to be able to do or to have in order to be considered a person, which is more than a mere human. Mere humans don't have rights. Persons do. And that's where we start to talk about the size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency. Um, we're talking, did you have something you want to say? I'm sorry. Uh,
1: no, no. Uh, but uh, at this point, though, we would like us to take a little brief break and remind everyone that what we do here at the Deeper Waters podcast, it is entirely listener-supported. I don't get paid a penny My guests don't pay me to come on I don't pay them to come on I wish I could Because I give such great service to you all But I don't They come on of their own free time What keeps us going Donations from people like you And I want to really encourage you To be making those donations You can go to Deeperwaters.wordpress.com And you can see a donate tab there That will take you to the ministry of risen Jesus which is the ministry of Mike Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes, you have. You make your donation there, then you email me, and my email is on the blog page, or you email Mike and Debbie, and you can email Risen Jesus to do that, and say, Hi, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will make sure your donation goes to us. It will be tax deductible, and if you can be a monthly donor, that would be even better. Another way you can support us is with uh, going and buying some eBooks, and we do have new ones available. In the past defining and have been our main one. I still encourage you to get that one, but I also have one that I co-wrote with an atheist, a dialogue. We had God and natural disasters, and also just this week finally came out the Creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed, in today's Christian. That's one that's solely on my own, and it's it's a short little one, you could read it in less than a couple of hours pretty easily, I, I read it last night as well, and I, you can call me boss, but I looked and said, overall I'm very pleased with how this one turned out, and then you can go to the Amazon store we have from my blog page, and you can purchase books that you've heard about on the show, and some proceeds from that will go to support Deeper Waters, And we are, in fact, also working right now on a website. We've got someone who helps me out greatly, who helps set up a lot of equipment to do the show better here, and he is really burning the midnight oil to get a good website. Uh, In fact, I think it was just last night, he didn't even sleep at all because he was working so much on this website. And he's doing that free of charge. Uh, Also, he's just a big supporter of the show and wants to see it out there. And we appreciate that, but... To keep things like this going, we really need your support. And I'd like to remind everyone also that I will be in New Orleans this upcoming week. I'm going to be speaking Wednesday night at the Defend the Faith conference. And I I really encourage you to be there. And if you're a fan of Deeper Waters and you'd like to get to see me, please come and let me know who you are, and I'll be glad to talk with you. Now, um, J.D., you have been any uh, organization you'd like to encourage people to
0: donate and support? Well, my, my own organization, Pro-Life mm-hmm. Training, uh, Life Training Institute is the name of our organization, LTI, right. and our website is prolifetraining.com. Uh-huh. And um, we, almost everybody, you know, I, I don't work for free uh, yeah. on everything that I do, but I do live on support. And mm-hmm. what living on support does and what all of the people at LTI do, that we all live on support what it does is it makes it possible for me to do things, like you just said, that I don't get paid to do this. I don't get paid to go to a lot of the places that I go because I'm capable of going for free because of the people that support me and that support our ministry. Right, and you right. can go to our website, and we have a donate page there. It makes it possible, whether you give a general donation to LTI, whether you give to any of the specific speakers, not just me, but any of our, our speaking team, if you feel led to those. But what it does is it makes it possible for us not just to pay our bills, which is lovely, obviously, and to, to pay all our medical bills and to buy clothes and food for our kids, but also it makes it possible for us to say when somebody calls me and says, I really want you to be able to come, but I can't afford to pay you, which, by the way, happens more often than not. Yep. I'm able to negotiate with them and to say, I'm going to try to arrange for the people who have made my life possible to get me there to be able to talk to you. Uh, as all speakers ought to have that do this, this is all I do for a living. There are obviously fees that I charge for the people that can pay, but mm-hmm. the majority of people that I talk to that we deal with, a grant that lets us go, and then my personal donors, and make it possible for me to do things for free without having to charge, for the majority of people that need this, because we feel very passionately about what we do and wanted to get that message out, and we don't want finances to be... A, the thing that makes it not possible for me to work with somebody, I want mm-hmm. to be able to work with people because they need it, not be, and and not have a a bar put up between me and them because they need it but can't afford it. Right.
1: Yeah, you know, people. What uh, Jay's been saying here is entirely correct, and I find it true from my own perspective. What you're essentially doing when you donate us is saying, "I want you to be free." ...to do what you do. And if you think apologetics ministries, studying historical Jesus and resurrection things of that sort are important... ...and this show is important, donate to Deeper Waters. And if you think pro-life training is important, that we do need to be defending the unborn out there... ...to stop them from being murdered every day, donate to the Life Training Institute. In fact, I'd encourage you to donate to both of us, because we're each doing our own part... And so are so many other countless ministries mm-hmm. out there we could mention. But let's get back to the case here. You were making the case about
0: the sled argument, right? That's right. The sled argument. So we always start with size. Even though there's very few people that you'll ever meet that are going to say that the unborn are not like you and I, and so we're justified in doing them, we're doing them because they're so very small, it's not really going to be a sophisticated argument you meet. And it's really not going to be used too terribly much by people. If you don't, but what, what, why I start with size is because you do occasionally hear it, which are very small. Uh, but one of the things that size does is it gives us a great place to launch from to talk about things, the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic value. Uh, because we look at size and we say size isn't a value-giving property. And I would look around my house and say, look, I'm the biggest guy in my house. My six-year-old daughter is the smallest person in our house. We wouldn't look at me and say that by virtue of my size, and I'm very valuable and that by virtue of her size, she's very small. I remember hearing a terrible news report a couple of years ago about a terrorist attack on settlers in Israel. And they go through and talk about all the different people that were killed in that terrorist attack. And then finally they come to the idea they butchered a newborn child, which was the smallest in the house, well, if size itself is an indi- indicator of how valuable somebody is, and that was the least offensive murder. But that was the one that we had the strongest moral reaction to, was the idea that people would kill a newborn with machetes, to be so driven by these monstrous ideologies to hack up and butcher a child. It, it offended us to our very core as the most heinous of crimes, but if size were the things that gave us value, it would actually be the least of the crimes of everybody that was killed that day in that family. And, and, and we talk about large athletes, you know, Jake Matthews, which was the, the center or the left tackle for the Atlanta Falcons, a huge guy, a massive guy. Now, here's one of the things we started to differentiate between intrinsic and extrinsic. By virtue of size and athletic ability, Jake Matthews has value to the Atlanta Falcons. Millions of dollars every year kind of value to them. By virtue of my lack of size and lack of athletic ability and relative age of 44 years old, I have no value to the Atlanta Falcons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Falcons actually charge me to watch their games, and they pay him millions of dollars to play. That's a little value I have. I'm only a resource for them in that financial get So... Uh, but that's extrinsic value. That's value that he has to an organization by virtue of his abilities. It's no greater moral crime to kill him than it would be to kill me, because when we're talking about value, we're talking about value that we have by virtue of what we are. Uh, when, you were, when you were talking about the newborns
1: there, one thing I was thinking is that uh, what I usually hear in historical apologetics a lot of times is the charge that uh, God commands genocide, in the Old Testament, which we are going to try and have Matthew Flanagan come on and talk about his book that he wrote with Paul Penn Did God Really Command Genocide? And I think a lot of people, they might object to, say, a lot of the curing of the Canaanites, but what they really object to is,
0: but what about the children? Absolutely. Well, that's the hardest thing to overcome, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Craig Keener was speaking in Alabama, and a friend of mine and I uh, and him were talking that afternoon, and Craig told them, look, I'm, I'm disturbed when I read those accounts you know I, I'm bothered it's hard, it's a hard thing to read and that's what makes it hard, if it were just a battle of armies, I don't think you would have the problems that you have, right. uh, I'm reading right now a book about the history of religion and violence, and in that book they talk about how and she talks about, Karen Armstrong talks about how in, a, in ancient societies uh, the sort of cavalier willingness to kill people including women and children was seen as a strength a moral strength in their community I'm willing to do what's necessary I'm reading a book on Red Cloud, an American Indian warrior, and they talk about how the Sioux, uh, and their fighting in the in the western part of the United States prior to being settled and taken over by the, the Americans from the moving from the east and settling out in those areas. That they saw the killing of women and children as fair game and as something that you did to demonstrate your courageousness as a warrior. You were willing to do what was necessary. We read those sorts of things Whether it's in the Old Testament Whether it's in ancient religion study Whether it's in just American study American study in the American West And and what was going on out there And we recoil at the idea Of killing the small and the innocent But in this particular case Anybody that would offer the size Of their smallness And their relative weakness there And we're going to get to some of those As far as degree of dependence They're arguing that the very thing that we see Makes it most horrific to kill those people Is the very same thing that makes them Not people at all And that they have no value An intrinsic value that we have by virtue of what we are. Christopher Kayser in his book says we have to be mindful of the fact that the inclusive view of human value can't account for there being additional evils to killing somebody. Like torturing someone to death has two evils. Torturing them and then killing them. Those are two distinct evils that are being committed there. And so there's a greater evil in torturing somebody to death than just killing them. There is a greater evil in killing President Obama than there is in killing me as as Christopher Kayser says. He doesn't specifically say me but he says in any other human being. He says because President Obama is a human being and there's the same evil involved in killing us but there's also governmental instabilities and things that would go on related to somebody in a high office like the President of the United States just isn't present if you kill me. So there's additional evils involved but it's not a greater value that he has as a human being. His intrinsic value is the same in accounting for the additional evils they come whether there's additional actions that are taken or additional considerations. So when we're talking about intrinsic value, we're talking about the value they have by virtue of what you are. And outside circumstances, like my size giving me extrinsic value to organizations that could use that size to further or reach their own goals, it doesn't make me more valuable to a human being, however much it makes me valuable to them. So size is not seen as a value-giving property among us as we look around at more mature human beings. It should never be then applied to the unborn and them being small. But that's not where most of the argument happens. Most of the argument is is where we're about to go, the L, the level of development. Mm -hmm. This is where you're going to have most of your argument from both the sophisticated arguers and even the people who are less sophisticated. It's going to be there. They're going to say that there's some developmental marker that must be reached, some capacity, something that they must be able to do in order for them to now be considered a person. They're going to say that everybody that can't do that is not a person. That's a non-personal human life. And everybody that can do that is a person. And that's what uh, David Boonin argues for when he talks about in his book, until his child reached a and any of us, has organized cortical brain activity, which sometimes 25 to 32 weeks, somewhere in that area of development with inside the mother from the time of conception, 25 to 32 weeks after conception, you get organized cortical brain activity. He says, when you get that, you can have desires. And when you can have desires, it's wrong to kill you because now you're a person. Some people will say heartbeat. Some people will say brainwaves. Some people are going to say the ability to feel pain. Uh, Peter Singer and, and people of his ilk are going to say consciousness. But all of them are arguing the same thing, essentially that there is a level of development that must be reached in order for value to sort of, uh, for you to attain value, for it to, to adhere to you in some way, that you have now become a person of value. Whereas without that ability, you are not a person of value. And the level of development arguments we hear more than anything. Uh, Which my boss, Scott Klusendorf and I, when we talk about it, and he talks about publicly, he says, the question is why? Why is it necessary for me to have any of those developmental markers to be valuable? Who gets to decide? Because, by the way, they're all arguing different things. It's not like there's a a uniform argument that says that this is the thing that gives you value. There's a bunch of different people arguing a bunch of different capacities or abilities or developmental markers that they say give you value. Some people say birth. Uh, Some people say quickening, silly things. I, I say silly things, but I think those are silly markers. But they're always offering these different things and say, okay, at that moment now you're a valuable thing but prior to that there was nothing wrong that we could do to you. Mm-hmm. You see the extreme nature of what they're offering. Them. Mm-hmm. If you have not that develop- reached that developmental marker there's literally nothing wrong that I can do to you because you are not the kind of thing that has any value that, has any- that I have any duties or obligations to. I can do anything I want to the person or to the human being that lacks those capacities. Uh, now this is... Brought with
1: complications. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking right off that uh, my wife and I are both Aspies as you know and yep. there are several people on the spectrum who aren't as far along as we are. They're, they're more severely disabled than we would be and we've got some good friends. They've got a daughter with Down Syndrome and, mm-hmm. and she's three years old and still has a diaper and can't feed herself and such and there are so many people out there who would look at lives like ours or like a Down Syndrome kid and be more than happy to say, yeah, you're you're not developed yet enough. And as someone on the disabled spectrum, that is something that just angers me greatly when I see it.
0: Yeah, and and, and Christopher Kayser points out in his book, The Ethics of Abortion that what we do is, is this kind of argument, when we, when we take value and we put it on a functional thing, a thing that I can do to a certain level, so what we do is that we, we're ultimately going to consign ourselves to a world where nobody ever has full value, and there's no such thing as universally human value. There's no way to look around and say that all human beings have the same value and to make sense of those sorts of intuitions, because if it comes from consciousness, well, I'm, as, as Kayser argues, I'm never fully conscious, and my consciousness is going to wane. And, and the other side will argue against this, and they'll say that, well, consciousness or these sorts of markers are thresholds that have to be crossed. Uh, and then once you have it, uh, for example, Boonin, we'll just use him as sort of an example for all of these sorts of arguments. When Boonin talks about desires, you have to have desires. We have desires or the ability and the capacity to have desires. We have organized cortical brain activity. We say, what about when you're sleeping? You're not actively desiring anything when you're sleeping. See, that's right. So you have a current desires which you're actively having, and then we'll give you what's called dispositional desires. Dispositional desires mean that when you, you're you asleep and you're not desiring anything, you have a disposition that if I woke you up, I know you would be desiring to be alive. So you still have a right to life because you still have a dispositional desire to be alive. And then you ask the question, okay – then what about those people who have corrupted desires? Uh, the, tra- the tragedy of Rick Warren's son that we saw played out over about a year ago when he, he killed himself. A man who desired, mm-hmm. it, they say struggled with that his entire life. He couldn't shake himself of this desire to die. Uh, nor, and he didn't want that. You know, He didn't want to have that, but it was there. Uh, indoctrinated slaves, people that have been let grown up and raised to believe that they deserve to be slaves. Their desires are corrupted. And then here, there's an interesting little trick that Boone does. He says, well, in his book, Ethics of the Defense of Abortion, he says, I can imagine such a thing as ideal desires. And I can defend it, and I can tell you what they are, but I don't really want to take the space to do that right now. But let's imagine there's such a thing as ideal desires, They're the desires that one ought to have if one's senses were properly functioning and their desires were properly oriented. Now, to very briefly take on what's going on here, I think this is interesting because, as Christopher Kayser and others have pointed out, I think Frank Beckwith has pointed this out as well, what Boonin starts to do is here, he starts to, to uh, pirate in, to sort of funnel in under the table worldview mechanisms that don't go along with what he's arguing. Because mm-hmm. when you start to talk about an ideal desire, for example, I should want this. Well, why should I want that? Because that's good for me. Because that, need, need I say, is, is I am ordered to certain perfections. And whether I desire those things or not, I should be desiring those things that will help me reach those perfections to which I'm ordered. Well, this is a different understanding of human beings than Boonan's offering us, but he's appealing to this sort of concept to give his ideal desires. Ideal desires are those things that you would desire were you properly functioning, because those things are what's good for you. And there are those things that are good for you because you're properly ordered to reach for those goods. Well, those are the concepts that I'm a properly ordered thing, that has goods that, that, uh, that lead to my perfections and things of that nature. That's a metaphysical understanding of humanity that I accept, but it doesn't fit well into what he's offering there because he needs it though, to explain why somebody with corrupted desires still has a right to life. And, and, and Christopher Kayser even offers up another thought experiment. He says, well, what if I can, I could go in prior to the natural development of the organized cortical brain activity and, and tinker with the brain such that, that natural desires would never form. And so I have a fully indoctrinated slave that will never desire for his own good. Have I wronged that being by doing that? He says, under, Christopher K- under David Boone's argument for desires being the source of value, I don't see how you can coherently say that I've wronged them because there was never a being with desires to subvert in any way. But if I can say, and I think that we can say that we wronged him, then there must be something else doing the work, the metaphysical or the moral work, the necessary to ground their value. Man. Uh, we get to the end of the month
1: here on January 31st, and we have my friend David Starrett coming on. He's written a book called Aborting Aristotle. And yes. how we Oh, you, you know about it? I do know about it, yes. Yeah, okay. well, I've read it. It's an excellent book.
0: Oh, wow. You know, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So. Yeah, he,
1: he sent me an advanced copy, even. I suggest that you could come on my show to talk about it. And he's talking about how we need to return to Aristotelian metaphysics, and that's exactly what I started thinking when you're talking about having the proper desires and such, I start thinking,
0: teleology, teleology, yep. teleology. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, what, and with the level of development, what ultimately happens is, we've mentioned Singer a couple of times, and, and he says consciousness, and not just him, uh, you know, Michael Tooley, Marion Warren, several people will use the, the argument of consciousness. And when you point out, hey, look, and you mentioned that Peter Singer says, nothing magical happens when you're born. You know, that yeah. the tribe that's truth now to birth now doesn't change you into the kind of thing we shouldn't be able to kill. As a matter of fact, he and another philosopher, I think they by the name of Cuse wrote at one point It's like, look, we can't argue we can't coherently argue that we should be allowed to kill them a week before they're born, but afterwards, once they're born, we are compelled by our moral intuitions to do everything that we can to keep them alive. That just doesn't make any sense. So what he's going to argue and others are going to argue that consciousness gives value. The only reason this is important is because I hear this more than anything when I'm talking to kids on campuses. That gives you the the, the uh, consciousness gives you value and so what he'll say is that when you say well that means newborns don't have value It's absolutely right there's nothing in and of itself wrong with killing a newborn human being Uh, a newborn human being has no value in and of itself it has no consciousness it has no desire to continue to live and you do no wrong to it by killing it except in so much as you deprive its company from some other human being that does have consciousness and desires and wants it to continue living and there was an article that was written in the Journal of Medical Ethics by an Italian and Australian philosophers a couple of years ago now where they argued for such what they call after-birth abortions. They said mm-hmm. that we have to start considering after-birth abortions. They said, and they said, let's use the term after-birth abortions because infanticide is morally loaded and people cringe at the word infanticide, but they love abortion. They're fine with it, basically. So if we use the term abortion, we'll be fine. We'll call it after-birth abortion. And and there was a second issue that was of Journal of Medical Ethics after the outcry over that first article that entirely focused on that. And about half of the philosophers that responded, I think about half of them said, yeah, we ought to consider after birth abortions. You should be able to take your child home from the hospital. Some genetic abnormality shows up that you don't want to deal with. You take them back to the hospital while they're newborn and have them painlessly and mercifully in their mind killed. And, and uh, this is horrifying. You know, Robert George wrote, it uh, hit the shortest, I think, essay in the response to the original essay in the Journal of Medical Ethics. And his was short because it basically amounted to Robert George, the Catholic philosopher, saying, hey, this is madness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about killing newborns as if it were medical treatment. This is madness. Uh, and, and, and Singer's response would be, as we mentioned earlier, there's nothing mad about it. I mean, if we can abort them while they're inside the mother, nothing changed. They didn't become something different when they were born. Uh, Which gets us to E, environment, the idea of where you are. I mean, Peter Singer's right, I think, when he argues, look, inside the mother, outside the mother, they're the same thing. They're the same kind of thing. They're substantially the same type of being. And if I can kill them there, I can kill them here. There's no difference. Uh, What changed from location? Nothing. And I agree with him, by the way. I just disagree with the idea that we should be able to kill newborns. I think that our intuitions that it's horrifyingly wrong to kill newborns are right. And so since we know we shouldn't kill them here, then we shouldn't kill them there, simply because they're inside the mother. So where we are geographically doesn't give us value. And and finally, the D is degree of dependence. And I point out to people, it's not just dependence. I don't think it was lost on Stephen Schwartz, a brilliant philosopher, that, that dependence started with a D. There's a reason he uses degree of dependence. And and the reason he does that, I'm assuming, is because he recognizes that that we all have some level of dependence. Mm -hmm. We're all dependent on other people, every single one of us. So what we're doing is we're trying to ask, is there a level of dependence, a a point that you reach of dependence where we're going to give somebody else the power to draw a line through humanity and say everybody that needs this much help, everybody that's this dependent, everybody that needs other people this much, they're no longer persons, and their lives have no value. Everybody on the other side of that line they're persons, so and we should treat them with respect and dignity and honor them. That's a, that's a tremendous thing to, to do. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: when when we, you were talking about it, I was saying that uh, last month, I haven't had the joy of coming down with a stomach flu virus that was going around. And normally I'm pretty resilient, but when I'm throwing up constantly, I became entirely helpless Absolutely, and was lying on the couch, needing to have nearly everything done for me. And uh, I, I'm sure my wife was very really tempted to want to do away with me at times when that <laughs> was going on because I was just so <laughs> annoying. But I was entirely dependent. So what we could say is, mean, could someone would say, well, you know, he is being really annoying right now. There is a way you can deal with that problem because he's so dependent. <laughs> and then on a more extreme level... Uh, I'm How about if we look at someone like, say, Stephen Hawking, who is a brilliant mind. I I think he's wrong on a lot of issues. There's no doubt he's a brilliant mind. Absolutely. But he is absolutely dependent on his staff around him and on the machines that are there to get those ideas out of that mind. There is no way this guy could survive on his own without all that stuff. He'd
0: be dead before too long entirely. Would it be okay to kill him? Yeah, and, and at what point? Who and who gets to decide that? My daughter, it just you know, several feet away from me, playing in the front of my room. I mentioned she's a type one diabetic. Yeah, I, yeah. One one Sunday, she was this radically independent little eight year old girl. One Monday morning, we're in the emergency room, and we find out that she will be medically dependent on insulin for the rest of her life, or until they cure diabetes. That she she now requires meal decisions to be a family decision. She requires my wife to get up almost. Every night, she's an incredibly active and athletic girl to check her blood glucose level to make sure that she doesn't drop down under an unsafe place and go into a diabetic coma. I mean, her life is dependent. Um, Is she less valuable? I mean, my grandmother, when she was 95, she was radically dependent. Was she less valuable? Was it a lesser offense to kill her at that point than it would be to kill any other human being? Uh, These kind of dependence in no other place, it it ought not to be a marker. Unfortunately, it is, And, and we're having that conversation more and more. We're making decisions based on expenditure of resources on whether or not we should waste those resources, and I put that in air quotes, on somebody who has very little return for the resources we're gonna invest in them, a a thinking that has grown in the Netherlands and uh, Belgium and is dangerous. And I think we see it now in certain parts of the United States, specifically, I think in Washington, Oregon and places like that, but growing Colorado, Mm -hmm. uh, a conversation that's starting to be had nationally, I think that once we start to find a group of people that are very comfortable saying that X person has a dependence level that makes them worth less than Y person, uh, then we need to be very careful. Uh, we, we've reached a place where we're starting to make some terrifying decisions.
1: Hey, when you were talking about why we do waive some people on sounds for financial means and such, I, I was thinking about this thing but I've said before, that when we look at what the Canaanites did, and they were practicing child sacrifice, Mm-hmm. Which is wicked and evil, no doubt. But you know, you could say, at least when they were doing it, they were doing it for something like say the good of a harvest or something of that sort. I mean, it's still not a good thing, but their, me- their conclusion was, hey, we gotta have a good harvest, so let's do this. Today, we do child sacrifice through
0: abortion, and we do it at the altar of convenience. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, and over- overwhelmingly, the number of abortions that happen in the United States happen. Uh, by for virtues of what we would consider convenient reason, I mean, and so it, it is. A, it, and and you know, one of the things I think is interesting is we're starting to talk about make clear that we're talking about dividing up humanity between those human beings that matter, because science does, demonstrates they are human life. So that human life that matters, that human life that doesn't, who gets to make that decision? And Christopher Kaiser, in his book *The Ethics of Abortion*, he does talk about. He says, "Hey, you know, there was a, there's all throughout human history we have made the mistake." of drawing a line through humanity and saying those are persons like me and those are not and he said and every time we've done that throughout human history we have never treated the people first of all that we've put on the other side of that line well Uh, we've usually killed them taken from them seized their property uh all those different enslaved them and he said and every time every time we have had to morally mature to the point that we have to recognize what we were doing was wrong that we had no right to draw that line through humanity. We had no right to look at other human beings and say, you matter less than me. And he asked the question, what, what are the odds that this time, what are the chances that this time we have finally found another group of human beings that we're justified in treating the way that we are? We've never been right before. Never. What are the chances that we're finally right? We're not good, given our track record. I mean, we have to be. So when we talk about size, level development, environment, or degree of dependency in any of those things being the means by which we draw lines to humanity and say those people matter and those people don't, mm-hmm. we have to be very careful about the kind of arguments that we're making. First of all, I think they're outrageous arguments anyway. I mean, I think it's weird to be able to say that there's such a thing as this basic human animal that exists, and at some point personality descends ascends upon them, and then personality can come and go. You have episodic problems. Uh, you have all sorts of different issues that are going to come into play when you make that kind of an argument. And obviously, we're just touching the surface of this stuff. We can go on for hours yeah. talking about the philosophical arguments that people took about this stuff. Yeah. But it, it the, the, the problem that you start to have is, is you walk away from an inclusive view of human value. An idea that we we judge human beings by virtue of what they are, not what they can do. And as soon as we start to assign to them value by virtue of what they can do, we open up the door to abuses we've seen before and all throughout human history. some. Not as bad as others, and some, obviously, the worst things we've ever seen human beings do. But all of them begin. And what's interesting, I thought you said when you talked about the reasons for the child sacrifices. I hear so many times when people talk about the the stuff that people are doing or the views that they hold. Well, people will say, "Well, they have good reasons to hold that. So most people have reasons for what they're doing. Simply Mm -hmm. having reasons doesn't make it okay for them to do it. The question is, are there reasons... Legitimately held. I mean, are these? Do they actually do the work that's necessary to justify the person who has an abortion because they're afraid of their academic future being impacted has a reason, but does that reason raise to the level to justify the taking yeah. of this human life? I don't think so.
1: When uh, you were talking about how we uh, try to divide the line about who's worthy of life and who isn't, my uh, wife I got me for Christmas a book called The Holiness of G. K. Chesterton.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. He's just incredible. He is. And one thing that I found in the book is that that no one has ever gone off on a study of anthropology and came back and said, you know what, I uh, did my study and I found out I belong to an inferior species.
0: (laughs) I love Chesterton. One of the things I told people is that the sad thing about living in the world after Chesterton is that anything you want to say... It's worth saying. He probably already said and certainly said it better than you.
1: Yeah. He,
0: he just had a way of saying everything. And so a lot of my talks, especially if you, I don't know if you've ever read Chesterton's book, Eugenics and Other Evils. I uh, haven't
1: got to read that one yet.
0: Okay. That's a little but It's a small book, mm. relatively speaking. And you can get it for free on an uh, e-book. And it's a mm. great book. Uh, but I quote from that uh, uh, quite often when I'm talking to people because Chesterton is just the man with a way of saying things. hmm
1: yeah, I, when I lived in Charlotte, had a roommate, I had a collection of a complete Father Brown mysteries and he he's big into a project also, so I let him borrow it. And he uh, came to see me one morning and said, you know, I'm really upset with you. And I said, how come? Said, so, Well, I started reading that book last night, I thought I'd just read a little bit of it. And I read three mysteries and I was up until 1.45 a.m. before <laughs> I went to sleep. Well,
0: that's Chesterton
1: for you. That's Chesterton. That's him.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, we've only got a few minutes. So before we start wrapping things, up, what are some things the average Christian can be doing to help the pro-life movement?
0: I, th- I think, number one, you know, the Christian church is, in my opinion, and I mean this as a whole, from having traveled around the country and, the world, and a little bit around the world, is, is too comfortable with abortion. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that there are clearly there aren't voices out there. I mean, the guys that you mentioned coming on, Mike Adams and Dave Steer, they represent a group of people out there. And I get to work with hundreds if not thousands of people mm-hmm. in the course of a calendar year that are doing stuff. The problem is that there's millions of people out there and, and, and we're too comfortable with it. I think that going back to that crisis that I had, I'm constantly amazed at at how it, it sits with us and how we've, we've learned it as a, just a part of our life. And if the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are, and we've made the argument that they are, Mm -hmm. and and, and that argument is parsed out even more on our website and even more in books like Frank Beckwith's Defending Life or or, uh, Christopher Caves' book Ethics of Abortion, Body and Soul by J.P. Moreland and Scott Ray. All of these are books that, that more sophisticated levels of argument, even in Scott's book, The Case for Life, Scott Klusendorf's book, you get a better look at the details of the arguments we've been talking about But what what I walk away from when you talk about the church is the level of comfort that we have with it and the fear that we have to engage it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's difficult to understand because I've talked to pastors all day. They say, look, I'm afraid I'm going to divide my congregation. and, And I'm going to offend somebody in the congregation that has had an abortion. Here's something. Every time I go to a congregation, I talk about the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I talk about how there are women and men out there that are suffering from the pain of past abortions, that are carrying guilt that God never intended them to carry. And that because the church is afraid to talk about it, we have taught them the lesson that we all recognize in the church that abortion is wrong. They've gotten that message. What they haven't heard clearly enough, because we've been afraid to talk about it, is that there's forgiveness through Christ for the sin of abortion. And that they can come forth and get that forgiveness if they just know it's there. And what far from dividing congregations. More often than not, what happens when I'm at the front afterwards and I'm taking questions from people that are just coming up to talk to me, especially after sermons, is that they say, I have been struggling for years and finally hearing somebody stand up and say those two things. Number one, yes, my history with abortion was wrong, but God loves me and has sufficient grace to cover the sin of my abortion and my past. I, I, I feel finally... Like I can say it, you see, the church's silence hasn't helped the church stay unified. It has condemned people in the pews to carry guilt because the church is afraid to say, mm-hmm. you got an abortion that was wrong because it unjustly took the life of innocent human being." but the forgiveness of Christ is there for all those who repent and come forward. And so it, it's just a tragedy for me that the church is so afraid of this issue or so complacent on this issue, and too many people are are hesitant and too comfortable with it to bring it up because they don't want to be disrupted when disruption is what we need.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we've uh, come to the point that we sadly do need to start wrapping things up. I I would say uh, something else that people can do to help in the fight against abortion is to be supporting ministries like the Life Training Institute. Not everyone can go out there and be arguing on the front lines. It's like not everyone can go out and be a missionary to every single country out there but one of the things you can do is support those who are doing that
0: I agree Mm -hmm. and also local pregnancy centers I got active in the pregnancy in the I got active in the pro-life movement through my local pregnancy center and one of the things if you've ever read um, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman Uh, There's a great emphasis in there about local action. We talked about non-actionable information where we become overwhelmed with pain and misery over things that we're hearing about happening on the other side of the world or, or large issues that we really can't do anything about what your local pregnancy center does is it gives you the opportunity to go on a local level to a place in your community and affect abortion by loving people in a way that I think honors Christ Mm -hmm. and and that's how I got involved in it it was through a pregnancy center that I met Scott and how I ultimately came to work at LTI Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a great way for you if you're looking to interact with this issue in a constructive and Christ-like way I would advise you to look at your local pregnancy centers and get involved there
1: well Jay it Unfortunately, we do have to be wrapping things up due to time constraints. Um, if someone's really interested in what they've heard from you, they want to find out more about you, maybe get in touch with you, ask you a question and such, how do they do it? Do you
0: have a blog, website, something like that? Yeah, if they want just larger explanations of the arguments we've talked about a little bit, they can go to prolifetraining.com, and we have articles there. If they want to get in touch with me specifically, uh, they can do like for speaking engagements. People usually contact prolifetraining.com. There's there's ways to do it there. But if you have a question for me, you're free, feel free to send me uh, an email at j.a.watts at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. That's my name, J A Y. dot at gmail.com. Uh, I you know serious questions, people that really have serious problems or things that they're mm-hmm. they're worried about. I will do my best to answer as quickly as I can. I always ask people to remember that you know I, I do travel a lot and I'm on the road speaking a lot. So sometimes when people send questions, I'm not as fast at getting back as I should be. Uh, and if you're looking just to fight, I don't do that on the internet. So <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. do it in email. And I don't. I will answer serious questions, but you know every once in a while somebody sends me an email from somebody and says, "How do I deal with this?" And I say my response is I just ignore it because I don't want to fight. Uh, and that, that would be my last thing I would say as I walk away from this. Okay. It's Im- it's important to me to be able to do the things that I do in a way that honors Christ. I want to reach out to people with the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ at the same time as confront something that I think is a horrible injustice in our community. And we have to remember that our goal is to win people by winning arguments. That we want them to change and transform their views because we believe their wrong views are hurting them. Not just society. It's not just bad for society that people say these things that are wrong. And I mean this entirely across the realm of apologetics. I have to remember that the person that I'm arguing with, is a, it's much like I used to be as an atheist, is somebody that may have a future where they could impact the world for the kingdom of Christ. And that they, it's better for them. Some, the one Christian, I, had, I hated Christians when I was an atheist. I hated them, and they hated me. We had that relationship going, and it was working pretty well. And so one Christian came along that argued with me respectfully, clearly liked me, clearly wanted what was best for me. If they didn't have an answer to something I said, they said, I don't know they transformed my view of Christianity in the sense that they didn't convince me to become a Christian, but what they did was that they made me willing to listen to the arguments for Christianity. The arguments won me over. Mm-hmm. I, quite frankly, Christ won me over, ultimately. And, and it's He who I serve. But um, it was only because there was a person that loved me enough to love me even when I was unlovable, and to reach out to me as if I was worth it. Not just winning arguments, but that I was worth reaching and so i try to carry that into everything that i do this is a hot button issue that brings up a lot of emotion if you cannot talk about it constructively you need to study and prepare yourself to the place that you can and as soon as you're capable of engaging in a way that honors the christ that sends us out then you must do so because the issue is of such moral importance that it has to be confronted in our age and in our time
1: well jay i'd like to thank you for coming on with deeper waters podcast and i hope we'll see you again sometime
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the time and allowing me to be on here, Nick.
1: And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we have the most hated man in America, Mike Adams, coming on. So I, I hope you see I'll see you here next week, and I hope you absolutely hate it. <laughs>